Oh, good morning again, everybody. <laughs> hey, let's get in the Word of God together. What do you say? Yeah, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We'll be in verses 8 through 11 this morning. Continuing, kind of I slowed down here, but continuing uh, the testing of the king, the temptations of Jesus. If you don't have a Bible, it should be one of the seat uh, back in front of you. If not, you can raise your hands and one of the ushers will bring you one. All right, everybody's got one then. While you're making your way to Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, um, so far... In Matthew's account, he's been making the case for us that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen, that's a bold claim. Jesus, a man who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, is the Son of the Creator of the universe. I know we kind of are uh, Christians, we're kind of used to the terminology, but that's the bold claim. And so Matthew is making the point throughout the first few chapters here, that Jesus is indeed the son of God, God in the flesh, God incarnate. Well, how, how can you prove that? How do you know that? Chapter one, he begins with the lineage. Look at his, look at his bloodline. Goes back to Adam, goes back to Abraham, goes back to the promises. And so he really nails down a lot of prophecy. Where, where was Jesus born? Well, that was prophesied. It would be in Bethlehem. Hey, you know, he was born to a virgin. What do you know? That was prophesied. It was laid out. We, we see the story there. Well, what happened then? Herod didn't like that too much. He was going to kill him. That was prophesied that all the kids would get slaughtered in the region. And that the Messiah would not only be born in Bethlehem, but he would come out of Egypt. Now, how does that work? Well, he had to flee. His family fled into Egypt for a season. And then they came out. And so Matthew is laying down all these prophecies comes out of Egypt, but while well, he's also supposed to be from Nazareth, well, how does that work out? Well, he didn't settle back into the region of Judea because Herod's son had taken over. And so they moved up to the Northern country of Nazareth where he was raised. And we fast forward and we get into chapter three. What happens in chapter three? Well, guess what? More prophecies. The forerunner is coming. The one who would prepare the way from the, for the Messiah. Isaiah spoke about him, but also Malachi. Uh, the, they, the, the Old Testament closed with the anticipation that the Messiah would be coming. And there would be a one coming out of the wilderness declaring, prepare the way for the Lord. And here comes this guy out of the wilderness. Not like the normal pastors and priests and stuff wearing camel hair. Well, maybe that's normal today. <laughs> Wearing camel's hair, right? And eating locust and honey, just a humble man, holy, set apart. And he's calling the nation to repent. And instead of uh, being in a very public, big, giant place, he's out in the wilderness. And there's a move of the spirit of God for the nation to repent. And people are coming out of, to the wilderness. Now, how many of you kind of plan and pack to go out to the wilderness? <laughs> Okay, let's do 2,000 years ago camping trip into the wilderness. There was a move of God and people repenting and they're preparing and they were wondering if John was the Messiah. And John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. This is in John's account, John, the apostle's account of John the Baptist. No, there's one greater than I is coming whose sandals, a slave's role. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming is going to baptize you with Holy spirit, with the Holy spirit and with fire. He can give you eternal life or eternal hell. He's the one you need to prepare your heart for. He's the one who's coming and his winnowing fork is in his hand and has that imagery of where he's going to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. And so be, the, be ready, have open hearts, prepare the way for the king. And then it leads to the baptism, and that was a prophecy again. And you see the, the coronation of the king, so to speak, where any time a, a public figure in Israel's history would enter into a public service, there would be the anointing upon them and the public declaration that this is who it would be. And so Jesus out in the wilderness takes a sinner's baptism, of course, symbolizing what he would be 
doing, taking upon our sins upon himself. And you have the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove and the voice of the father from heaven, declaring his love for him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Wow. Jesus pops on the scene and here we move to chapter four. It says the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we spoke about this. And so this is kind of where we're picking up the temptations of Jesus. And we know that God does not tempt that word tempt and test is the same in the Greek. It's about the context. God does not tempt the devil tempts, but where the enemy tempts, God would test and where God tests the enemy tempts. And we kind of saw in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, how what Jesus was going through mimicked what the children of Israel were going through in the wilderness and they're testing 40 years. And here's Jesus's 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, 2, Moses said to the children of Israel as they were coming back into the promised land after having failed all the generation that died off because of unbelief and murmuring and all that stuff. And he said to them, to that generation that was about to take the land, He said, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And that is at the heart of what is going on right now. Not for Jesus's benefit, I don't believe, but for ours, that we would know what was in Jesus's heart. Where Adam failed where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. He overcame the temptations that we've all fallen to. Amen. That wasn't loud enough. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Because if Jesus is truly the son of God, if he is truly the son of God, If he is going to save us from our sins, his very name means God will save. Then he has to have victory over which we do not have victory. He has to go through what we've been through and yet succeed. He has to be righteous where we are unrighteous. He must overcome what Adam and Israel and all of us have not the temptation. And so G- so Jesus is being tempted by the devil and these temptations all have one central theme to get Jesus to deny his father's will. That's the theme. Deny his will, deny the father's will. And that is ultimately what the temptation's goal is. What Satan's temptation aims for us is the goal is, is to put our will above God's. That's it. If you kind of simplify it down. And so our Lord is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness in the first 11 verses of chapter four. We've already gone over the first two briefly. I'll just remind us in verses two to three, two to three, the devil tempted Jesus in the first temptation saying, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And we spoke of how the devil works in temptation. He comes to us in our weakness doesn't he? And he challenges God's word to us. If you are the son of God, then do this. And so he attempted to get Jesus to do something that Jesus had the ability to do. We know later on, Jesus goes and miraculously feeds 5,000 and he does it again, right? But it was against his father's will to do it. Because Jesus was in a time of fasting, a time of testing, a time of denial. But Jesus answered and he says to Satan, this is how we know what's going on. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Although there was nothing wrong with bread. Jesus knew that life is not in bread. It is in God. And that's the difference between how Jesus viewed things and how we view things. We think life is in stuff. Life is in the physical. Life is in bread. Life is in all these things. Ultimately, it's not that we don't have physical life in those things, but that's going to go away. How many of you are realizing that? Yeah. 
Where is real life, eternal life? Life is in God. And Jesus knew that. You see, Adam, when he was tempted, he put the temporal above the eternal. And Jesus sets it right. He puts the eternal above the temporal. And he says, now you're going to follow me. I'm going to put my spirit in you and you will walk again according to the spirit. It was the devil's will that Jesus uses power and his position and his abilities to put physical needs above his father's word and will. And Jesus makes it clear that real life is in the, is in God, not in bread. And what the devil's aiming here. And, and again, what's at the root of all these temptations, the principle is that Jesus put the physical, Jesus put the flesh above the spirit. That's it. And Jesus knew, and, and here's the thing. If Satan knows that if Jesus would put the physical above the spiritual in this moment, dealing with bread, then what's going to happen with that looming cross that's coming at him? What's going to happen then? Jesus knew there's a cross in front of him. And then again, in verses five through seven, the devil tempted Jesus. The second temptation this time he twisted scripture. We talked about twisting scripture. Then verse five, the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. They're in Jerusalem. They're on this 450 high foot part of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Your Bible says Satan quoting scripture here. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil tempts Jesus and he even uses scripture to do it. And we spoke last time about, um, about the need as to believers to become discerning in the word of God, to know God, to know the God of the word and the word of God. Amen? Amen. So that we would be able to discern what is going on around us because the enemy is really twisting scripture these days. What is God's love? What is God's compassion? What is his grace? What are all these things? It's in our culture. It's all over the place. And if we aren't discerning, we're going to be twisted. We're going to go down the road of deception. For Jesus, the devil took the promise of God's protection for the Messiah out of context Listen, God's protection for Jesus was not the father's protection for Jesus was not that he would be able to jump off of things and prove himself to be Superman. The protection was leading him to the cross. My time has not come yet. Jesus said over and over and over to be king, to be killed, anything. He was leading him to the cross. That's where he was going. That's what the protection was for. And we saw that miraculous interviction where he walked blind, he blinded people. He walked through them. He escaped people trying to throw him off a cliff, all this type of stuff. And what the enemy was trying to do is get him to use the promises of God for his own means and gain. And boy, do you see that preached today? Got all these promises, but they're out of context because people are undiscerning about what those promises are for, who they're written to. And what's the heart behind them? Ask anything in my will and it'll be done for you. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15. No, John chapter 15. Well, of course, Lord, you know, I want the Lambo. It's got to be your will. And I don't want to pay the insurance. Thank you. You know what I mean, right? Why not? I love you. It's like, okay, well, there's a context. Abide in me. Let my word abide in you. Ask according to your will. What's my will? What's your will, Lord? And it'll be done for you. See, we ask according to his will and it'll be done. And he shows, it shows that we're his disciples. You're like, oh, well, that's not fun. No, it's not. And that's why it preaches to tell you that it's about you and not about God and his glory. And by the way, the greatest joy you can have is being wrapped up in his glory and his will. If you find that out as a believer, it's amazing. 
So you see, God's protection had a purpose. It was leading Jesus to the cross. The cross was the plan. The cross was the sign to the world, not jumping off and being saved and everybody going, woo. It wasn't him jumping off and being saved. It was him losing his life. There was the sign. It was the sign of Jonah. The way up is down in the kingdom to lose your life, not to gain it. And so the devil tempts to circumvent the will of God. And when we succumb to the devil's words over God's words, God is not glorified. And this is Satan's ultimate plan. Do we know that? If you won't directly follow him, he'll get you to indirectly follow him. Do you know that? If it's not direct, it's indirect. And that's his plan. As long as God is not getting the glory, as long as you are not obeying God, you're under his power and his influence. You're listening to him, not God. So the temple, the devil seeks to do this, that he would receive glory as men obey him and not God. And so we come to the third temptation this morning, verse eight, let's pick it up. And again, the devil took him away to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these, I will give you. If there's his, if you will fall down and worship me. Pretty sweet deal from a worldly perspective. So Satan in this third temptation recorded for us, he shows his cards. Finally, this is what he's after. This is what it all comes down to. He desires the worship and service that are God's alone. He desires your worship. He desires my worship. He desires my service. He desires your service. The one that is God's alone. Now we need to know that Satan is a usurper. I want to take you and paint a picture for real quick of what of Satan's nature and how he fell and all that kind of stuff. So bear with me. Flip over to Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 17. We see the origin of, of Satan's fall. Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. You ever wonder how, how Satan fell and why he fell and all that kind of stuff. This gives us insight here. Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. Let me read it for you as we go along together. He goes, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And here's the reason why, verse 13, and you said in your heart, and he gives five I wills here, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to hell, to those far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. What's happening here is there's an earthly king. And, and as he's describing an earthly king, you're starting to get a vision of something that happens, a description of the enemy. And this happens in Daniel, happens in other places as well. And there's a, there's a tie. I don't want to get weird on this, but there's a tie between earthly leadership and satanic leadership. And we see that in Daniel 10 and other places like that. And, and this, this whole thing lays it out. I, I'm not going to have time to develop it too deeply this morning, but there's a lot there. The point is that the reason Lucifer, and that was his name as an angel fell is that he was cast down from the very throne room of God, from the very throne room of God, because what was in his heart was the desire to usurp God. I will Five I wills laid out there. I will do these five things. We'll go over them in a second. But Satan is a usurper. That is who he is at his core. He is a usurper. He wants to ascend. That is his desire. He wants to ascend, ascend, ascend. He wants the position of God. It's no mistake that we have towering buildings with our names on high. It's no mistake 
that people desire fame and fortune and likes and subscriptions and all these types of things that their name would go forward. It's not a mistake that those who are under his influence mimic his five. I wills here. They are. I will ascend to heaven. Is this not what we're taught? You must ascend. I know we all try to do the platitudes of, oh yeah, we'll do it humbly. But really what's in our hearts, me over you, us over them, I will ascend. And I'll do some good things to kind of make people think I'm a good person while I'm doing it. But at the root of it, man, we've got a sin problem. I will ascend. Satan says, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high above the stars, the angels. I will sit on the mount. That's God's throne room of God. I I will ascend above the heights. I will make myself like the most high. Notice he is always trying to go high, 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 high. Where does he take Jesus in this temptation up to a low mountain, a humble place? Takes him to a high mountain, to his throne room. That's his aim. Notice all the in the Old Testament, all the worship of the idols was in the high places. That's his aim to lift himself up. Yet in his effort to ascend, he was cast down. God cast him down a parallel passage for you who like to study these things. Ezekiel 28 verses 12 through 19, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. Let me read these for you. You were the signet of perfection, Lucifer, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And he starts laying out all these precious stones of uh, sardius and topaz and diamond, beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire, emerald and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. This is imagery for how beautiful Satan Lucifer was when he was created radiant in glory fitting for someone who is ministering in the throne room of God, radiant in glory. Corinthians, I think talks about Satan being an angel of light, a minister of light. No doubt his ministers are ministers of light. We always picture Satan as this grotesque thing with a pitchfork. No, that is not how he works. He mimics the most high. That's how he is. We see this because what's coming on the scene, an antichrist, a false prophet, all trying to funnel worship towards him. That's how he works. He's a usurper. And on that day you were created, they were prepared. Notice he was created being Satan is not God is not God's opposite. He is a created being. You were an appointed guardian cherub. You're an angel. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. I mean, we have no clue what the throne room of God is like, except for the limited descriptions we have of roaring thunder of an, of an ocean of glass of rainbows and lightning and circles within circles and all this kind of stuff that's going on. We have no, we, it just goes past what we are, this place where there's stones and there's cherubim and fire, light and thundering and, and roaring ocean. I mean, it's just, it's everything. It's a sensory overload. And here's this being created for this place to be a guardian cherub of the, of the, my guess is the holiness of God. Powerful in his rank and his ability. You can read about the description of what cherubim are like in Ezekiel 10. I'm not going to do it right now. And seraphim in the, in Isaiah six, probably right. These angels that are around the throne room of God and they are not male room angels. 
highest ranking, powerful angels. It talks in Ephesians about, uh, you know, different dominions and powers and authorities and ranks and all these types of things and how Christ is above all of it because all things were created by him and for him through him and all these things. He's above all he's the creator, but he was made lower than the angels, right? That's, that's saying something. The cherubim were mighty angels who were before the throne of God, along with the angels called seraphim. So Satan was some sort of cherub. And verse 15 of Ezekiel 28 says, and you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. I don't understand this. This is the mystery that God only knows. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing out from the mountain of God. An unholy thing in the holy presence. He was cast out and I destroyed you. That word destroyed is banished. Or, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. It speaks about the stones of fire in, in Isaiah as well. You know, when he takes the stone of fire and gives it to Isaiah and cleans his lips. So it speaks about the holiness of God somehow. Don't understand it. That's a something we're going to find out in more detail here coming up shortly. All of us will who are in the Lord. But there at the stones, it was a cleansing stone. But anyways, Lucifer was before the very throne of God in this very high position. And he wanted what was God's alone. And he was cast down. Your heart was proud. Verse 17. Why? Because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you for the Kings to feast their eyes on you. You see, Lucifer was obsessed with his obsessed with this beauty with the outside, with the flesh. What is this world obsessed with? Of what its father is obsessed with. Everything that is on the outside. So many of us are worried about our image. I mean, I get it. But I mean, what does God see? Men looks at the outside. Satan cares about the diamonds and the beauty on the outside. What does it say in scripture that's precious to God? Women? Sisters? It's not the hair, the adorning of the hair, although that's great and all that wonderful stuff. What is beautiful to God? It's that heart, that gentle, quiet spirit before the Lord. The thing that's never going to go away, the unfading beauty. And women, you want a man who realizes that because you're going to get old. Amen. Yes, you're getting old. You're going to get not, you're not going to stay 20 forever and don't let him lie to you about it. Because what's beautiful who you are before in the Lord, a thing that outward man is perishing, but the inward man is what being renewed day by day. And same with you guys, the other way around, right? What's our position? What's our, what do we do? And all these things, the outward projection, man, I'm a son of God. My identity is in him. My confidence is in him. I don't have to ascend. I can be humble like Jesus, I can lay down my life. I can serve. I don't have to be number one. I can live for others. I can lay my life down that you might live. That's not what the world teaches you. It'll tell you to do that, but that's not what it wants you to do. That's not what it's set up for. It wants you to be hypocritical. Satan was corrupted in his splendor. He says, I cast you to the ground, exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. And I think this is just an eternal view. It's a past, present and future thing all thrown into one. And we get to see it. See, Lucifer was obsessed with his beauty in the outside, the physical, the flesh, so to speak. What he wants is the worship that is God's alone. He wants to be in the position of the most high. And so he, re- he, he desires to redirect worship away from God. That's his aim. And when worship is redirected away from God, it goes to him by default. And in doing so, people are indirectly worshiping the enemy. They are under his influence. They are the sons of disobedience in whom he has influence over Ephesians chapter two. And we see his influence upon the world today as people are obsessed with this image, beauty, power, all these types of things. And we got to be careful 
as the church, that is not what is to draw people to Christ. It's not the outward perfection of, of the machine for crying out loud, the presentation. Yeah. We want to give God glory and all those things. We don't want to slack, you know, and, and, you know, we want to give God our best in our worship and all those types of things. I, I get that. But what is going to draw people to Christ are things of the spirit. The world is so good at the flesh, everybody. You can just take a deep breath. <sighs> you mean I can just lean into the Lord and pray and follow him and let God be strong in my life? Yeah. And I don't have to be the perfect evangelist. No. You don't. I don't have to have every word perfect and all your theology all lined up. No, God will teach you as you go. Have a humble heart. Walk before God and obey him and love him. And be his instrument in the world. Just want to encourage you in that. Take the pressure off. Because God does all the heavy lifting. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power. Not you are the power. It is the power. The gospel is the power. What Jesus has done in and through you. It's amazing. You know, that's the way, the way of the flesh is what the enemy wants. But this is not the way of God, which is the way of the spirit, right? We read shortly in Matthew chapter five, blessed are the what in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for whose is the, for theirs is the kingdom of God. First Corinthians one, not many of you were triple PhDs and of royalty and all that stuff. When you were called, I'm paraphrasing, just to let you know. No, you weren't all that, but God chooses the things that are not to confound the things that are wise. It's not, God doesn't do the way men does. That's, that's the worldly way. That's the satanic way. Nothing wrong with having degrees. I don't want you to get, get, you know, it's not an either or type of thing. It's just, listen, it does not impress God. It's harder because those things become idols in our lives. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because we trust in riches, not in God. The man who has nothing, it's easier to trust in God, but we still have pride no matter who we are. So I can get myself into trouble there, but what God seeks to humble us, that's what he does. And it is the humble that he exalts and the self-exalted that he humbles. So notice that Satan brought Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple in the previous verses. Now he brings up to the high mountain. And what does he do? Notice that mountain. It's not Zion. It's his own throne room, so to speak. I think that's what this is. A throne of his own. And he's showing off what he controls. It was on that mountain. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says they're his. Satan says all the kingdoms of the earth are mine. And I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. Does Jesus argue the point that they're his kingdoms? No, he does not. Why? Because they're under his control. When Adam sinned, I think he forfeited control and Jesus is going to come back and take what he bought on the cross. That's the second coming of Christ. But Ephesians two, two calls Satan, the prince and the power of the air. Uh, first in second Corinthians four, four, it says Satan is called the God of this world, lowercase G, right? It says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ, of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. The reason why people don't see Christ is because they're blinded by a very powerful spiritual being. So how do you fight against that? Better get political real quick because elections coming. You could do that, but a more effective thing would be for you to become a man or a woman of prayer, a man, or a woman of the word of God, a man, a woman who discerns and yeah, sure. Do your good works in a way among men. So in a way that glorifies your father in heaven. Amen? Amen. And we see Satan's kingdom and his dominion on this earth being demonically defended, by the way, it's his kingdoms, his kingdoms here in Daniel chapter 10, where the prince of the kingdom of Persia, remember when we went through Daniel, Daniel church, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, you're going, what in the world is this? Satan, uh, Satan, Daniel is praying. He's praying and he doesn't get an answer to prayer for like how many days? Like a lot of days. 
Why isn't God answering? Well, an angel finally shows up and goes, listen, the moment you prayed, I was dispatched. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia and his dudes stopped me. They hindered me until Michael came or some other angel came. I think it's Michael. I can't remember. Another more powerful angel came and broke through. And so now I'm here to deliver the message above my pay grade, folks. I'm sorry. I know I'm supposed to know all this, but it's like, God just goes top secret. Here it goes. And goodbye. It's like, wow, there's a demonic thing going on here. Satanic influence over Persian. By the way, that story continues because that angel will say later, listen, the next angel is coming in and then it's lined up with a, a physical leader. And I don't want to get beyond that because you get into weird stuff, but that's what the scripture shows that there is satanic control over this world. And there's a spiritual war going on. And our part is not to fight with physical stuff, but it is to pray in the spirit that these things would be worked out. However, they get worked out. I don't know. And so Satan is called the God of this age, the Prince of the power. And Satan takes Jesus up to the King up top of his kingdom and shows him all the kingdoms and the glory that he is ruling over. If you ever wonder why the world is going berserk, this is why you ever wonder why it's just like, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why is the world just doing this? It's not logical because there's a powerful deception happening upon us and we've given ourselves over to it. And it's part of God's judgment upon us as a people to just give us over to this stuff. You want it? Here it is. And here's more of it. And here's more of it. And here's more of it. And now you've got a debased mind with a debased culture who doesn't know right or wrong. And our conscience is now seared to where up is down and down is up. And so people are sincerely defending things that are evil, thinking they're good. And that's what James says in the last days, what's going to happen? Or Peter says that the end is the, they're going to call evil, good and good evil. And he says to Jesus there of the kings of the earth, I'm going to give them to you. You can have them on one condition. Here it is. Now what Satan probably knew or would know shortly and Jesus definitely knew is that Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan to take back what had been given up to destroy Satan's grip over mankind via our sin and our, our rebellion towards God. And Jesus came to overthrow Satan's kingdom and instill an everlasting kingdom. Daniel chapter two, verse 44, check it out with that rule and that reign and that ascension and that King, that kingdom came through a cross alone. That's how it came. That's how it was coming. It, was, it would come through a cross. And what Satan is saying here, and he does in all of our temptations is Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross to get the crown. I will give you the crown with no cross. Just worship me. Who wants to suffer? I want to go to easy church. I want to be easy kingdom. Anyone else? I don't want to deny myself and pick up my cross. I, I, me, I, what I want. Amen. Anyone else? That and worship me. And that's what the root of the temptations of Satan is for Jesus. And what also is, is aimed for his life for us that you can have the crown without a cross church. Just worship me. Just heed my word, not God's focus on self, not God. You don't need to deny yourself. You don't need to pick up a cross. No need. Case in point, Matthew chapter 16, 21 through 23. Jesus began telling his disciples about what was about to happen. I'm going to the cross guys. I want you to know I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. That's the plan. And what does Peter do? Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter meant well, didn't he? But he had no understanding. But he turned and said to Peter, what did he say to him? Jesus turns to Peter and goes, get behind me who? Satan. 
who is pecking and whispering in Peter's ear? Go tell Satan. I mean, go tell Jesus. There's no cross needed. Peter goes, no, man, there's no way you don't need to do this. He didn't know. He didn't understand. Get behind me, Satan. Why? You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's what happens when we fall under the sway of the enemy. We get fleshy instead of spiritual, true spiritual in the spirit. Satan was whispering and doing all that. When we come to a situation where we are denying the cross, you know, who's behind that. Okay. And speak, speak, preaching myself. And Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 16, he follows that whole thing up with Peter. And he, what does he say right after that? He says, if anyone would come after me, this is where I'm going. I'm headed to the cross. And if any of you are going to follow me, and that extends to any of us, if we're going to follow Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Satan says to Jesus, I will give you the crown without a cross. And Jesus says, there is no crown. There's no way to the crown without a cross. That's what's happening. You've got to follow me. And this is the grave temptation. Not to be outright Satan worshipers. How many of you guys go, yeah, I'm going to follow Satan. No, it's indirectly. By not following the Lord. By not picking up our cross. And Jesus says, you're either one or the other. That's the way he looks at it. And that's what we succumb to so many times. We become lukewarm or indifferent or whatever it might be. It's interesting that later in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, Jesus would warn his disciples enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. You hear that? And Satan was tempting Jesus with the wide, easy gate. And I don't, not that I think Jesus would be tempted with that, but. But the same wide gate that is constantly tempting us with the crossless path, the path of the flesh and not the spirit. All you need to do is compromise. All you need to do is worship me. No cross needed. Now, real quickly, in tying this up, verse 10, Jesus responds to the temptation. He says, and Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. Be gone, Satan. Right? For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only can, shall you serve. This is Deuteronomy 613. This is the first commandment, first of the 10 commandments, right? We know that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Amen. He hits him with the first commandment. Jesus was devoted to worshiping and serving the father. Now, this is key for us this morning to understand that to worship God is shown in our service to him. It's important. It's those, those two things are tied closely together to worship. God is to obey him. Do we know that Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to do what? You're going to obey my commands. That's important to know. And the first mention of the word worship. And by the way, anytime you're, you're kind of wondering what something is in the Bible, it's always good to go to the law of first mentions. I think uh, you go back to the first time the words, the word says that word. And you can find out a lot about the context of a word. Well, worship, the first mention of worship is in Genesis chapter 22, which is where Isaac is told by God to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and take him to a mountain, which I'm going to show you and, and give him as a burnt offering to me there. Now that's a weird law of first mention. Anyone like, okay, there's something deeply wrong about this. God asking someone to take their son and go sacrifice them to him. Now we know that's against God's nature, right? So what's going on there? This is the law of worship. First mention of worship here. And so what we find is that when God told him to do this, Abraham went early the next morning 
And when he saw the mountain, it says in verse five of Genesis 22, he says to his servants who were with him, stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy, I and the lad will go over and worship and come back to you again. That is so packed with theology. It is incredible. The context here is the first time worship is mentioned. The father is commanding Abraham to sacrifice his only son on a mountain on Moriah. And so worship involves obedience, worship, obedience to the commandment of God. Worship involves sacrifice, specifically in this case, the sacrifice of an only son. And it involves faith. Abraham went believing in God that God would bring them both back. Cross before the crown. Make sense? It doesn't to me totally, but we know that God stopped Abraham, didn't he? As he was about to plunge that knife into his only son, we know from Hebrews trusting, believing that God would have to make good on his promise that he would have to raise him from the dead because he promised that through Isaac, all the nations would be blessed. And so he said, I'm going to obey him no matter what, because I know that God has to make good on his word. He will have to raise him from the dead. Faith in the resurrection. And as he went, God stayed his hand. But you know what happened 2000, was it 2000 or 3000 years later in that same exact spot? That same exact spot on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. As another father took his only son and he didn't hold back. And that son knew what was going on. He worshiped obedient sacrifice, trusting in the promises of God. Jesus knew what real worship was obeying the father, going to the cross and trusting God for the crown. That's what worship is. We sing, but without that, this is nothing. Without love, not a worldly love. If you love me, you'll obey me. God's love. This is nothing. It's a king. It's a clanging gong in God's sight. Our gathering together is a clanging gong. I have to have love. And Jesus is our example. And here's the cool thing is Jesus died. He rose again and he's come and he's brought his spirit to us. And he's calling all men to repent. And the glorious grace of God is that we respond to the gospel we respond to the spirit of God and he makes us new creations and his spirit comes in us. And now we worship in spirit and truth. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Galatians two twenty. right? Someone help me there for I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live for it. I get it backwards for the life I live now live. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're identified with him in his death in how we walk but now we're also identified with him in his life and how we walk. Amen. Paul said in Romans 12, one through two, I appeal to you. Therefore, this is after Romans one through 12. How many of you read Romans one through 12? Huge, lofty stuff. Beautiful. The gospel. And he gets there in verse in chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy that's set apart and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual. What? I'm sorry. What was that? Sorry. What? What's the other word that's there? Oh, which is it? Worship or service? Which translation has it right? Yeah, they had a problem with that. Why? Because you want to worship God, you serve him. You want to serve God, you worship him. It is our spiritual act of worship to live as living sacrifices. What does that mean? We follow the Lord today. We respond to him today. We read his word and we obey him with the powering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I love that. In our time and our talent and our treasure. Jesus is the ultimate example of that dead to self and alive to God by God's grace. And so to worship God is to serve him. And Jesus said to Peter, remember that? Do you love me? Well, then just do what you want. I'm cool. Just as long as you love me. It's all right. 
If you love me, go feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Go do what I called you to do. Go love the way I loved you. Sacrificially, obediently to the father. So the root of all Satan's temptations, as we finish here, put self above God, just like Satan. That's what he wants you to do. Recognize it. Become discerning in it. Know your enemy. Know yourself, right? More importantly, know God. And so Romans 8, 5 through 6 says, For those who live according to the flesh will set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is, is life and peace. And then verse 11, Jesus said, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I believe Luke says that in 4.15, he says, uh, and he, he waited for a more opportune time. Satan's always waiting for a more opportune time, right? Yeah, he might leave you for a moment, but he's always prowling. So just expect it. Be on guard. That's a whole other message. But here's one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4.15. This is for us. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as, as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the son of God. <laughs> he did what we could not, and we are in him. Amen. He is our savior. And so, man, we are in strong arms. He is our strength in our weakness. He is our victory over temptation. He is his spirit is within us and his word is in us. And may God's grace just fill us with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a deep knowledge of him that we may be discerning in these days and not just easily taken over by every wind of doctrine, and all the things that are going on. Amen. All this, may we love God more fully. Amen. May we love one another more wholeheartedly. And may we put to death ourselves and not give any excuses for that. Amen. Father, thank you for what you've shown us through this passage. I know we slowed down here for a bit, but it's so deep, so rich. Lord, as we face temptations in our lives, Lord, let us look to Jesus. Put our minds on our savior, on the one who walked the way that we need to. And Lord, let us walk by faith in newness of life. May we pick up our cross and follow you every day. Encourage us this morning. Forgive us, Lord, where we've fallen in temptation, where there's attitudes and actions that don't glorify you, Lord. Thank you that we have a mighty, mighty, mighty Savior a tidal wave over our sin. We love you, Lord. May we love you in word and deed. May we truly worship you. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you all this week. Go love one another, amen? All right, see ya.